This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insight hour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insight hour. Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. The word Buddha, as you know, means the awakened one. And for many of us, the goal or the aspiration in our Dharma practice is just this awakening from the sleep of ignorance and of delusion. And we all get a glimpse of this, just a glimpse, uh, every morning when we wake up when we wake up from a deep sleep or from a dream state, we come into a waking consciousness which somehow feels more connected, more real, more vivid. But the Buddha pointed out that even in our normal waking state, we're really still asleep. Because we're often lost in and identified with all the various habit patterns and conditioning of our minds. You know, and even after these first few days of the retreat, I'm sure you've noticed how often we get carried away on trains of association. You know, desires and plans and judgments and future thoughts and past thoughts are simply a stream of random thoughts. When we hop on these trains of association in our minds, we don't know when we've hopped on, and we have no idea where the train is going. And then at some point, it's as if we wake up, oh, I've been thinking. So in all that time that we're lost, we don't really know what's going on. It's as if we're asleep or dreaming. So the question for us is, how can we wake up from the dream of our waking state, our normal waking state? How can we come into a true wakefulness? In the Tibetan tradition, emphasis is placed on one particular state that with proper understanding guides us or has the potential for awakening, for becoming aware. And this state is called the bardo. And we're perhaps most familiar with it in the teachings, the well-known teachings of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Now in this text there are detailed descriptions of what happens in the time between one life and the next and the profound opportunities for awakening, for understanding, that present themselves to us at that time. The problem is that for most of us, the bardo between lifetimes is probably rather hypothetical, unless 
we happen to have some memories of it. So what relevance does this term bardo have for us? The term bardo itself simply means transition or intermediate state, the time between two events. And recently, I had a bardo experience, which I thought I would share with you, because it proved very illuminating and pointed to possibilities. I began to appreciate the possibilities in the many bardos of transition that happen right within this life. So over this past summer, I was doing a lot of traveling in this country and in Europe. And in one particular transit, I was on a transfer bus from Gatwick Airport to Heathrow Airport in England. And just sitting on the bus, in some way, my mind disengaged from time. You know, I had left where I had come from. I hadn't yet reached where I was going. And it was either out of tiredness or maybe just enjoying this time of nothing to do. I was just sitting on this bus. It was about an hour long ride. My mind became very quiet, very reflective, and quite unattached to being anywhere. You know, you've probably had that experience on journeys, maybe sitting in a plane or on a bus or train. In those moments of transition, we've left where we come from, where we came from. We're not yet where we're going. So in that space, we drop out of the stories of our lives. You know, there's no past, there's no future, and the mind simply rests in awareness without attachment to any particular thing, to any particular state, to any particular activity, to any particular outcome. As one of our Tibetan teachers, Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche, said, we can rest our weary minds. And in this bardo of transition, there's that possibility. We just rest. So in these moments of timelessness, of not wanting, of not craving, of not anticipating, when we're just resting, the empty, open, aware nature of the mind becomes very evident. The non-clinging nature of awareness reveals itself in these bardo moments. And at these times, it's as if the mind naturally inclines towards wisdom, precisely because we're not lost in the stories of our lives. We're just resting in openness. So our mind naturally inclines towards wisdom and often provokes a deeper-than-usual investigation. We might start reflecting or asking questions, what does keep us enmeshed in the stories of our lives? Because this is generally how we live, really caught up in the dramas. How do we get caught over and over again by the hands of time, by past and future? And how much of our lives are burdened by these huge mountains which we carry on our shoulders, the mountain of past, the mountain of future? Is it possible to be free? These are the questions that in this bardo state we can really look at and investigate how to bring the great potential for awakening that happens in this state of transition, when we are resting, when we're not caught up, how do we bring the great potential for awakening into the midst of our lives? That's really what I'd like to talk about tonight. What can remind us again and again 
to truly wake up. In the Buddhist tradition, there are four reflections that have this power. The power to awaken us from delusion, from habitual actions, from the forward-plunging momentum of samsaric seductiveness. Do you, do you often feel that your life is like that? It's just, <laughs> we're just plunging forward. You know, pulled forward by the seductiveness of samsaric existence. So what can free us from that? These reflections are not philosophical musings. They're not just intellectual exercises. They are all profound tools of practice. They're practices that actually turn our mind towards the Dharma. And they're called the four mind-changing reflections. Because they change our minds, they change our orientation. They're all familiar to us, but they are particularly powerful in the bardo of a retreat. You may not have realized it, but you're all in the bardo. It's the time in between our worldly involvements. You know, you've left your world behind, at least physically. You know, and you're not yet where you'll be at the end of the retreat. It's just this intermediate space, and there's tremendous potential in this space. During a retreat, these four mind-changing reflections, when we hear them and reflect on them, can deeply influence our mind streams. It's as if we just water the seeds of them, the seeds of remembrance, so that they come more frequently in our lives. The first of these reflections that turn our mind towards the Dharma is the reflection on the preciousness of this human birth. The Buddha had a vast vision of the universe. And it's really quite awe-inspiring to consider his vision. Many different realms of existence you know, from the lower ones to the higher ones. Countless world systems, immeasurable expanses of space and time, lives without beginning. You know, it's, it's a big picture. And he taught how difficult it is and how rare it is to be born as a human being, to attain human birth that it's a tremendously precious gift, and it's likened to arriving at a great treasure island. Why? Because when we know the way, as a human being, the greatest good, the greatest happiness is possible. We have that opportunity. It's all here when we know the way and when we practice. So this human birth is considered this rare and precious gift. And as a human, there seems to be just the right balance for many of us of happiness and suffering to motivate our efforts to awaken. They say the heaven worlds are not so conducive to awakening because people are just enjoying themselves too much. And so we have just the right mix that kind of prods us forward. When we have the time and the interest and the motivation for practice, we really should reflect on these as a great blessing in our lives. It's rare. Now, how many people in the world do you think have come for a month or two to look at and understand their minds. Out of how many billion people on the planet now? Not too many people. 
have the interest, have the motivation, have the possibility, the resources. So it's an amazing occurrence, you know, that all these conditions have come together. So this reflection on the preciousness of our human birth and the preciousness of our circumstances reminds us not to take these circumstances for granted and to think they'll always be there. And it really arouses a sense of what in the teachings is called a sense of spiritual urgency. Yet this is an important time. There's tremendous possibility in this bardo. When we reflect on this, it can inspire great joy and a great confidence you know, in our lives and practice, even in the midst of suffering and confusion. You know, as you know, the blessing of this precious human birth and the circumstances that allow us to practice is not a free bliss pass. We're here and there'll be lots of times of confusion and lots of times of suffering. But the Buddha talked about two kinds of suffering. He talked about the suffering that simply leads to more suffering. It's like a downward spiral where people drown in their suffering. And there's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering, where we use the confusion, where we use the suffering as a motivation to awaken. For myself, when I'm in some situation of suffering, when something's going on, there's some emotional you know, difficulty or whatever, whatever the situation may be, and I'm experiencing it as suffering, it almost always piques my interest. It's like, what's going on? What are the causes of this suffering? How can I be free in it? So that's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Many of you know, and we'll be speaking probably many times during the retreat of one of our teachers, this amazing woman from India, Deepama. She was an extraordinary being. She was married at the age of 14, which was you know, the traditional age for marriage in India at that time. She had a very loving husband, wanted children, for many years couldn't have or didn't have. And then, after many years, she had three children, and so was really fulfilled and happy in that. And then things just took this amazing turn in her life. Two of her three children died. Her husband died. And at that time, they were living in Burma, which was was all part of the British Empire at that time. And she was devastated. And she describes how for five years she was so overcome with grief that she didn't leave her bed. I mean, she she was devastated by this loss. And her friends said, you have to do something or you will die from this. Being in Burma at the time, they encouraged her to go to one of the meditation monasteries. And that's when this amazing transformation happened. She went to the monastery, she got instruction in this very method of practice, and in a very short time, she had attained high states of awakening, of realization, high and deep states of concentration, and all the powers that you read about. This is all in a, in a matter of weeks. You know, it's like her mind, either from past lives or some conditions, her mind was so right. And it was the suffering that she went through which motivated her practice. She said when she first went to the monastery, she was so weak that she had to crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. Could you picture yourself doing that? You know, you're you're sick, you're weak. I've got to meditate. I'm going to crawl to the hall. 
it's pretty rare. You know, mostly we travel, oh, I think I need to rest and stay in bed and take care of myself. And that might be different times a wise thing to do, but she's such an amazing inspiration. She was so incredibly loving. So just to see the potential of transforming the deepest suffering into the most free and loving expansive mind. So that's all possible when we reflect on this precious human birth and we see the potential. The second reflection that turns our mind towards the Dharma that keeps us awake in the midst of busy lives is the contemplation of impermanence. Now what's amazing about this is that the truth of change is not a mystery. You could go up to anybody in Barrie, downtown Barrie, who's never sat for a moment, and ask them, do things change? Sure, things are changing. Everybody knows it. But we don't really know it. We're not living that understanding. We know it conceptually. We know it intellectually. In this mind-changing reflection, we bring it down from the level of concepts to the level of living wisdom. It's really seeing the impermanence, directly perceiving it again and again and again. We see that things are continually changing. That's what transforms the mind. That's what turns our mind towards the Dharma. Suzuki Roshi was a very great Zen master, and he was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And you may be familiar with his books. It was one of the first Dharma books when the flourishing of Dharma in the West, Zen mind, beginner's mind, came out in the 60s or 70s, and it was just this jewel of a book. So somebody who had been studying with him, and they said, Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, but I just don't understand. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? So everyone laughed. Suzuki Roshi laughed. Everything changes. Then Roshi asked for another question. It's that simple if we can really see it, if we could really see it, we would not be clinging to anything. So how do we practice this contemplation? How do we practice this reflection? You know, the most basic principle in Buddhism is that everything, every experience, arises out of conditions. Things are not happening randomly or chaotically. They're arising out of conditions. And that these conditions are always changing. So many times, we know this from our own lives and the lives of others, people are leading peaceful, stable lives. Everything is just rolling along. And then something happens, and in a moment, everything can be turned upside down. You know, it might be natural disasters. It's like a tsunami in Asia several years ago, or Hurricane Katrina, or, you know, the great wildfires. Something happens. It may be a natural disaster. It may be war. It may be acts of violence. It may be accidents. It may be we're going along, and all of a sudden, one day, we find out, some disease. This is just how things are. Conditions keep changing. None of us are exempt from this truth. Not that this is happening to everybody else, and somehow we have a lock on stability and security. We don't. A little mantra that I found very helpful 
Anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime. Now you might hear that and think, oh, that would just make one a little fearful and paranoid. Anything can happen anytime. (laughs) But the practice of that reflection, I found, is just the opposite. In a moment of some undesirable change, and I remind myself, anything can happen anytime. It's as if my mind relaxes. Instead of trying to defend against it or think it shouldn't happen or think it's a mistake, this is just the nature of things. Anything can happen anytime. And there's a real sense of relief because we're acknowledging what is true. The experience of the truth of change also arises from a wise attention in, to things that we already know but we often don't pay attention to. So it's not that it's an esoteric knowledge. It's just we have to pay attention to the obvious. When we're paying attention, when the mind is not distracted, we see that everything is disappearing and new things arising in every single moment. Not only each day, not only each hour, but really in each moment. Experience is changing like the water, the current in a river, the flow of a river, or water over a waterfall. Do you ever, do you ever I'm sure you have at different times, just watched a waterfall and just watched the lip of the waterfall and just the endless, the endless flow, the endless falling away. So after the talk, when you get up, and you leave the hall, if you can remember between now and then, watch the flow of changing experiences. Just as you stand up and you leave the hall, there'll be changing sights and sounds, changing sensations in the body, different thoughts or maybe moods coming and going. It's always happening, this flow of experience. But we are mostly so lost in it that we're neither mindful of what's happening or paying attention to the fact that it's continually changing. So again, this is not complicated. This is very simple. It's just paying attention to this very obvious truth. even in an event that seems like a unified experience. We hear a sound, and we might acknowledge, oh yeah, the sound has come and gone. But what about all the changes even within a sound? All the changing, the oscillations, the vibration. Even the sound is not one thing. Or you're with the breath. The breath is not one. An in-breath is not one thing, one event. So many micro-sensations in it. We don't have to struggle. It's not about, oh, I have to get really tight and focused and see the microscopic moments. It's not like that at all. We need to relax and just settle back. And the impermanence, the momentariness of everything becomes so evident. These truths are self-evident. Everything is impermanent. That's what the Declaration should have, <laughs> Independence should have said. It's just that the truth of this is so ordinary that we simply have stopped paying attention to it. And so we miss the everyday, the every moment, opportunity to let go. And we miss the opportunity for relinquishment of grasping simply by not seeing the momentary changes that are taking place. 
Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master, he said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, your struggles with the world will have come to an end. What's so interesting to me is that something so simple and so obvious can be so difficult. Now, why is it difficult? Because we haven't trained ourselves to pay careful attention. And so that's the gift of this retreat. It's just the opportunity to train the mind, moment to moment, to be aware of how things are happening. It's not that we have to make things any particular way. You don't have to do anything at all to make things change. Things are changing all by themselves. So we can just sit back and relax and watch the passing show. And in that, the mind is freed. Some careful reflection on other obvious truths of impermanence can also jolt us out of the complacency of our lives, out of our deeply rooted habits of clinging and attachment and holding on. One very simple and profound reflection, one that's incredibly obvious, is that the end of birth is death. Did anybody not know this? So it's not a mystery. The end of birth is death. Our life is just getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We seem to notice this more as we get older. I mean, it gets more and more apparent. But it's equally true for all of us. But until we're faced with it directly, you know, until it's really in our face, often our awareness of death, our reflection on death, seems to be focused on other people. It's other people who always seem to be dying. And we don't make the connection, <laughs> quite surprisingly. In our culture, To reflect on death, to reflect on one's own death. You know, our culture thinks of it as something morbid. Something, why would you want to do that? And yet it's something the Buddha suggested that we reflect on every single day. That's how powerful it is. Because we are really internalizing, we're integrating misunderstanding of the impermanence of this life. It very much changes our perspective. It changes our attitude towards experience. There's less grasping, less attachment. We're able more to be in the flow of experience. So just as an exercise, something I found helpful, you might imagine yourselves on your deathbed. And just to make it a little more appealing, give yourself the bed. You know, we don't really know how we're going to die, but okay, we're in bed. So maybe that'll be an incentive to actually do this. But then try to imagine, really imagine, we're dying. You know, and maybe the senses are getting really weak. And if you've been with dying people, you, you probably have quite a vivid image of what happens. The body, the senses, the faculties all get very weak. The energy is weak. Well, it's, not, it's not unlikely that the body will be in discomfort or in some pain. So at that time, if you imagine yourself in this dying process, just to reflect or contemplate, what am I holding on to? What am I most attached to at that time? In that visualization, are we at peace? 
Can we imagine really being accepting of all of that? Or is there fear? Is there anxiety? Is there desire? So just kind of putting oneself in that situation, in one's imagination, it might reveal some deeply held patterns. As we reflect on this great truth of impermanence, that the end of birth is death, can we let it in? You know, does it frighten us? Does it inspire us? Wisdom arises in so many different ways. And one of my favorite and most inspiring examples of the possibility of a peaceful death arising out of a deep wisdom is the stories told of the death of Henry David Thoreau, who, for those of you from overseas, may or may not know, but he's a great American naturalist and writer, very connected to the land and a great humanist. He was dying of tuberculosis. And this is a description of his death, written by a friend. That Henry was never affected, never reached by his illness. Very often I have heard him tell his visitors that he enjoyed existence as well as ever. This is quite amazing. He remarked to me that there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. The mind always conforming to the condition of the body. That's an amazing description of mindfulness, of awareness. That awareness can hold anything. That there was as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, the mind always conforming to the condition of the body. The thought of death, he said, could not begin to trouble him. None of his friends seemed to realize how very ill he was, so full of life and good cheer did he seem. One friend, as if by way of consolation, said to him, Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go. Henry replied, When I was a very little boy, I learned that I must die. So of course I am not disappointed now. And he was young. He was in his 40s. I learned that I must die, so of course I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me. Some of his more orthodox friends and relatives tried to prepare him for death, but with little satisfaction to themselves. When his aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, he answered, I did not know we had ever quarreled, aunt. (laughs) It's an amazing understanding. He had such a deep wisdom about the nature of life and death and the naturalness of it all. One of the meanings of the word dharma is nature. It's just the nature of things. So can we open to it? Can we explore it? Because the wisdom of this exploration leads to that kind of peace. The third reflection that turns our mind towards the dharma is what in Buddhism is called the law of karma, reflecting on the law of karma, which is the understanding that all of our actions have consequences, that our actions bring results. But the Buddha went one essential step further in his understanding. And it's the clarification of this further step that offers the possibility for real happiness in our lives. And he said, that which most determines the result of an action is the motivation behind it. So it's expressed in just a very short little phrase, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So this points to 
just a very important part of our practice. This reflection on the law of karma, that what we do in our body, in our speech, in our minds, has an effect. It will bring results, like planting seeds, which will bear fruit. And what determines the kind of fruit, whether it's happiness or suffering, it's the motivation behind the action. The Dalai Lama said something very un-American in this regard. He said, the true value of an action is not measured by its success or failure, but by the motivation behind it. And we measure so often our actions. Was it successful or not? And then we take that on. If it's successful, we feel good about ourselves. If it's a failure, we feel bad about ourselves. The Dalai Lama is saying, in the most meaningful way, the success or failure is irrelevant. That what most determines the value of an action is the motivation. Because we cannot control the outcome. There are too many forces in this world outside of our control. But what we can do is train ourselves, we can train our hearts in purifying our motivation. And that's where the real value is. So given the importance of this, there is tremendous value in actually knowing what our motivations are. And this is a very subtle matter. Given that we're not saints, most of us, with a bow to my saintly colleagues, our motives are probably mixed. You know, they're probably... Very few or no one here who has totally pure motives all the time. But it's very hard to see. I mean, we're basically good people. So we probably basically do good things in our lives. But it's much more subtle than that. And it takes a real attentiveness and honesty and sometimes courage to really see what the motive is. I had one striking example of this. And this goes back many years to my days in India. And those of you who have been in India know that wherever you go, there, there are a lot of beggars around. It's just, it's just part of what the reality is there. And so everybody goes you know, and has some relationship or other to it. So one day I was just standing in the local bazaar buying some fruit. And this little beggar boy comes up and holds out his hand. And just quite spontaneously, I just take an orange that I just bought and gave it to him. Then something very interesting happened. He just walked away without the slightest acknowledgement. Like not a smile, not a nod of the head, nothing. And I hadn't been expecting effusive thanks for an orange. In fact, I didn't think I was expecting anything. You know, it was just, he was there, I had an orange, I gave it to him. But when he walked away without any response at all, I saw that there really was the anticipation or the expectation of some response, some acknowledgement. And it was so revealing because without that particular circumstance, I never would have seen that that was a little part of the motivation. I mean, it certainly wasn't the determining factor in it, but it was there. So just multiply that countless times in our lives and all the interactions we have. It takes a lot of care. You know, before we say something, before we speak, what's the motivation? We can see it in so many different situations. It's tremendously challenging and very freeing when we begin to look with that kind of clarity and honesty at our own hearts. You had a choice between somebody giving you $10 million 
and someone pointing out all your faults. <laughs> Which way would your mind incline? <laughs> and yet it would be a greater gift to have the person who honestly and accurately could point out your faults. So great is the benefit of self-knowledge. So really consider how we relate to these aspects of ourselves just in our own practice, in our own understanding, because a lot of this will be revealed in your time here. You know, the beauty of the retreat and the silence and the undistractedness, we begin to see all the different sides of ourselves. And it's not a question at all of judging our shortcomings. You know, rather we can actually be happy. We can be delighted to see the defilements arising in our minds. If we come from the perspective that we'd much rather see them than not see them. When I can see clearly some defilement, I love it. Because by seeing it, there's the possibility of freeing ourselves. And if we don't see it, we're simply acting out the habit patterns. So really look at your attitude, you know, as all these different aspects reveal themselves. Can there be delight? Can there be a real happiness in the seeing? So this reflection on the law of karma turns our attention to a wise consideration of our motivations, and to making wise choices in our lives. There are a wide range of motivations for coming on retreat. You know, when you reflect, well, why did I come here? Maybe some of you came, you know, just for some stress reduction, for cooling out. You know, because we lead busy, stressful lives, and just the chance to relax a bit. Maybe it's to come out of some psychological or emotional suffering and we just want to understand it more. Maybe it is for awakening, enlightenment. We have that aspiration. But what's interesting about this question of motivation is that regardless of what our individual motivations may be, and they may all be different, we may have come for very different reasons, They can all be held, each one of them can be held in the larger context of understanding that our practice, for whatever reason, whatever motivation we have, our practice can be done with the aspiration that it be for the benefit and welfare of all beings. So this is an underlying motivation that can be cultivated. And in Buddhist terminology, it's called bodhicitta, or the awakened heart. That my practice and my life be for the benefit and welfare of all. This is beautifully expressed in teachings of Shanti Deva who was, I don't know, 8th or 7th century A.D. Indian adept. He wrote a book, one of his great classics is Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And so it really talks about how to live as a bodhisattva, a being dedicated to the awakening of all. And there are some, just a few verses in this book which are called the Seven-Branched Prayer. I just want to read a couple of the verses. It gives an idea of the possibility of this aspiration. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment, until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. My body 
and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. That's quite an aspiration, that we dedicate our lives to bring about the benefit of beings. You know, when we hear this, it's possible we're inspired, and it's also possible we're a little daunted. Could I possibly live like this? Could I possibly dedicate my life to the benefit of all? So I think we need to follow the example of the Dalai Lama when he said, I cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. So if His Holiness is saying, I can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta, we can have a lot of humility with it and realize that we're just planting a seed. We're just planting a seed of a possibility, a seed of an aspiration. But if that seed gets watered, it can really shape our lives. The fourth mind-changing reflection is a reflection on what are called the defects of samsara. Now, samsara means perpetual wandering. And according to the Buddhist teachings, until we awaken from the dreamlike state of ignorance, we all wander through the different realms of existence. From the higher realms to the lower realms, back up to the higher, lower, higher, lower. We're just wandering around. The example is given like a bee buzzing around in a jar. It buzzes around from top to bottom, up again. But all of this is going on within this life. We don't even have to consider other lives. When we look at this life, when we look at one day, how many different worlds do we create in our minds? You know, riding the roller coaster of continually changing emotions and moods and thoughts. You might have happy thoughts about friends or your family. Maybe there's some excitement or anxiety about future plans. Maybe anger arises when you think of somebody who's been difficult in your life or despair about the state of the world. Or maybe calm from the meditation or going for a walk in the woods. It's just this endless round of different moods and thoughts and feelings arising and passing. It's the perpetual wandering. There's never any completion. There's never any fulfillment. This is samsara. But in contrast to being lost in these endlessly changing states, these momentary rebirths in different states, notice carefully the moment of awakening from having been lost in a thought or a mood. Kind of like that moment when you come out of the movie theater. You know, we go to the movies, and if it's a good movie, we get really absorbed in the story. We're in it, and the movie arouses in us all kinds of emotions and feelings. And that's the whole point of going. But then we step out of the theater, and you know that moment? (laughs) It's like a little reality shift. And all of this, oh yes, look, we wake up. That was just a movie. All of that was just, nothing really was happening. And somehow our perspective is a little wider or bigger. What's interesting is that the story was so engaged and seemed so real when we were in the theater, and so completely illusory when we come out. So our meditation provides limitless possibilities for experiencing that moment of wakefulness. Because for as many times as you are lost in a thought, I mean, how many times today have you been lost? can't even count them. 
But for as many times as you have been lost in a thought, exactly that many times do you awaken from being lost. Because at some point you lost, 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 lost. And then at a certain point you realize, oh, thinking. There's that moment of coming out of the dream, coming out of the story, coming out of being lost. Don't pass over that moment of awakening. Right in that moment, we can connect with a sense of wakefulness, a sense of openness, a sense of what mindfulness really means. So a suggestion which will be a condition for endless moments of happiness for you in this retreat. You're listening? I mean... Each time that you awaken from being lost, the light in the wakefulness, rather than judge yourselves for having been lost. You will have so many moments of happiness. You really will. Not only that, we learn to recognize the very nature of awareness. It's like it becomes so real for us because we're right in the experience of it. It's not theoretical. It's not you know, about the words that you're hearing. You're right there in the experience of what it means to be awake. And it happens countless times a day. Don't overlook it. Don't rush over it. amazing is that what seems so solid from one perspective, you know, lost in the movie, lost in our thoughts, and we're just so in the drama of it all, what seems so solid and real from one perspective is truly transparent from another. Oh, it was just a thought. That's all it was, the whole drama. So these are the four reflections the precious human birth, the reflecting on that, training ourselves in directly perceiving the truth of change on all of its different levels, reflection on karma and the importance of motivation and understanding what our motivations are and the possibility of planting the seeds of bodhicitta and the reflection on the defects of samsara. In the bardo of a retreat, in this very special time, between all our worldly involvements, now you've left them all behind, you're not yet re-engaged in them. This is a very special time and space. We can water the seeds of these reflections so they become powerful forces in our minds. They turn our minds towards the Dharma. towards discovering the wisdom of our own minds, towards discovering the nature of freedom. I'd just like to close with a reminder from a Tibetan teacher. His name is Zigar Kongchul Rinpoche. It's just a good reminder for all of us. It says, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. So this is really important. The potential for realization is universal and present in all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your lives into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, Nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you would do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you meditate? Would you go for a run? Maybe you'd just like to rest for a while or take a nap. Therapy can help you find and prioritize what matters most so you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, develop coping skills, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash insighthour.